Welcome to Private Equity Perspectives, a podcast by BDO USA's private equity practice. Each episode, BDO connects with leaders in the private equity space to discuss the latest trends driving deal activity, fund strategies, and portfolio company optimization. Hello, and welcome to BDO's Private Equity Perspectives podcast, where we explore the trends impacting private equity today. I'm Todd Kinney, National Relationship Director in BDO's Private Equity Practice, and I'm based in New York City. Excited to have uh, two guests joining me today. Uh, First, Mike Weinberg, Managing Partner of Levine Lightman Capital Partners, and Jeff Roth, Founding Partner of Bruin Capital. I'm going to talk to the guys uh, about talent and workforce challenges facing private equity, and also how Mike and Jeff are partnering with their portfolio CFOs to drive value. Uh, Just a quick reminder to our listeners that the remarks and opinions of our guests do not necessarily represent BDO's views. So with that out of the way, Mike, you've been in private equity for the past two decades and at Levine Lightman since 2008. I'm sure you've seen the firm evolve immensely during your tenure. Uh, So perhaps for our listeners, you can share a bit about your journey uh, with Levine Lightman and the global investment activities you're currently involved with. Thanks, Todd. It's um, it's great to be here. I uh, appreciate you giving me um, and Jeff this opportunity. Um, I, as you said, I've been with Levine Lightman or LLCP for um, going on 16 years, and um, we and the industry have really grown. I'd say in tandem. Um, so I am based in our New York office. The firm is headquartered in Los Angeles, and um, we are managing, um, you know, actively about $5 billion, but really $14 billion over our 40-year history. And we have followed a different path within private equity. We call it structured private equity, um, which allows us to invest both debt and equity from the same fund. And that structure provides monthly cash distributions and downside protection to our investors, while our owner operators that we partner with Uh, the ability to own more of the business because it's a slightly less dilutive, less riskier capital structure. Um, Thankfully, we haven't seen that evolve over our history, Um, but we have seen um, our value creation initiatives play a a larger and larger role. As we'll talk about today, we rely a little bit less on um, outside leverage and a lot more on building fundamental value and growth in in our businesses. Um, I um, have moved into the managing partner role, as you mentioned, really as part of our succession plan as our founders um, stepped away from the day-to-day operations about five years ago. So along with my partner, Matt Frankel, we manage the business globally. And I spend most of my time on the front end of our business, sourcing and um, uh, doing some initial due diligence on our for all of our portfolios. All right. Well, you certainly bring a lot of... Uh real world experience to the uh, the podcast today. So appreciate that, Mike. So Jeff, turning to you, uh, you've been with uh, Bruin Capital for the past eight years and are a founding partner there. Uh, perhaps you can talk a bit about your path and the types of investments that Bruin makes. Your industry focus certainly makes for an interesting portfolio, uh, especially with the post-COVID return of sports and uh, in-person entertainment. Yeah, thanks, Todd, for having me on today. Um, so Bruin focuses on profitable businesses that touch the sports, media, and entertainment ecosystem. 
We generally do control investing, but open to uh, co-control or minority as well. But you know, generally, we we look to back businesses with really strong founders and strong existing management teams, where Bruin can be a good value-added partner to help the business uh, meet and exceed its uh, its growth plans, uh, while helping them create new growth opportunities. We really, what we try to do is try to find the, what we call the Bruin value add. So we leverage our relationships uh, from from having you know the partners at Bruin operating in sports for 30 years. So we just from being around for a while have. Uh, have relationships with uh, people at the highest levels of global sports and media uh, and entertainment. We, we, we think we have good sector knowledge, operational experience. So we try to roll up our sleeves and, and really partner with the management teams to add value. Um, I'd, I'd add we're global in nature. We've invested in the US, uh, multiple countries in Europe and Australia, and our portfolio companies have uh, offices in, uh, in 16 countries. So we're, um, we're, 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 you know, we're generally focused on kind of that, that, value-added approach. Uh, we, we we sometimes find good companies that, that are attractive that we like, but we won't invest unless we can kind of identify that tangible uh, brew and overlay where we're able to actually be a value-added partner to the uh, to the company. All right. Well, we got two global investors. And Jeff, I think you're for sure my uh, first uh, sports-focused uh, investor. So great to have you on as well. Um, all right, I'd like to set the context a bit for our conversation in terms of how you uh, both see the landscape changing. Much of the backlog of deals during COVID is now cleared up, I think that's safe to say, and the current economic situation could be a little more challenging for new deals. So, Jeff, I'm going to start with you on this one. Uh, perhaps you can share uh, how your uh, deal acquisition and value creation strategies evolved, uh, if at all, over the years. Our deal evaluation uh, hasn't really changed. We we've kind of stuck to what we're uh, what we've been focused on um, from the beginning, which is really finding those opportunities in sports, media, entertainment where we can be a value added partner uh, to the to the management teams. I, I'd say we've seen you know lately maybe a slight slowdown um, in terms of companies that have been for sale you know due to economic uncertainty and high rates, but. But we're still active and are and are looking to pursue new deals and have gotten some some new platform deals done and have gotten uh, several uh, tucking deals done for the existing portfolio as well. We're you know we're we're not as focused on kind of um, you know thirty investments or thirty platform companies per fund and and thirty small bets. We're much more focused kind of per fund looking to do five to 10 bets um, that we're very passionate about uh, that we can then follow on with additional capital and, and uh, that, 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 re- that are required for growth initiatives and tuck-ins. And this allows us to spend more time with each company and, and drive growth and value. So we've across two funds completed 10 platform deals. So the, the buy and build nature has, has, always, uh, has always been there and hasn't changed. So 10 platform deals, but about 40 total acquisitions because we're, we're always very focused on tuck-ins. So none of that has really changed through COVID, through different economic cycles, that's kind of where we continue to uh, to play. And although deals get a little bit harder now and interest rates have changed and gone up a lot and and um, have, have, um, have, I think, caused the slowdown in some of the kind of top of funnel new deal processes, a lot of the deals that we do are, you know, companies and people that we may have met three or four years ago where the time wasn't right that we just stayed in touch with. So we've been able to, to get some stuff done and um, and just continue to focus on the sector that we, that we uh, that we know and understand. Yeah, makes sense. How about you, Mike? How about your uh, your approach to deal acquisition and value creation? I generally agree with what with what Jeff said. I mean, what we we continue to read about 
um, how there's been a slowdown and how interest rates have affected access to capital and headwinds that are that are uh, you know potentially in front of us. Um, where I look at what we do and like Jeff, you know, it's important to remain incredibly disciplined in terms of asset selection, focusing on the types of businesses that we've been investing in for 40 years. We're still seeing plenty of those, and they might be situations that we have been following for a longer period of time, as I think Jeff mentioned. And in fact, we've we've been able to close five new platform investments across our uh, various funds this year alone. Given the market backdrop, that I think speaks volumes. Um, but it's important that you don't adversely select. So just because we have five deals in front of us doesn't mean we're going to choose one. We, we, we've gotten periods of time where we haven't made investments. And it comes down to that value creation and how much conviction our team has in doubling, tripling, or even quadrupling or more the cash flow of a business, both organically and inorganically. We have to convince ourselves that we can do that based on the price that we're, we're being asked to pay. Otherwise, we're not going to make that investment. And, and that decision has very little to do with the amount of leverage that's available. So I'm actually pretty optimistic right now, and especially given that we don't rely as much on outside leverage. I think it's a competitive advantage in this market. I like the fact that you're both uh, sticking to your disciplines and uh, what has worked historically makes uh, makes perfect sense. So Let's pivot to uh, fundraising. We know that fundraising has also slowed due to high interest rates, inflation, and uh, geo geopolitical tension. Uh, so Jeff, maybe uh, you can handle this one. I'm just curious how Bruin is navigating fundraising and how do you see fundraising evolving uh, in the near future? We still have a, a lot of dry powder left. And, and so what we're really focused on you know, for most of our day is, you know, deploying capital into new and existing platform companies and working with our existing portfolio companies. You know, that said, you know, you're in this business, you're always thinking a little bit about what's next and the fundraising market and when the right time to go is. So, you know, although it's a, currently a tough fundraising environment, given the factors you mentioned, um, denominator effect and uncertainty in the market and higher rates and inflation, um, and other dynamics, uh, you know, we, we, we've, um, you know, we, we feel like we're a little different and we're able to be a little more, more sheltered from that. Uh, we found success in fundraising in the past, um, in, you know, various different times, uh, and, and economic cycles, you know, driven by a proven track record. The fact that we're, we're very specialized and, and focused on a specific, you know, sector, similar, you know, Mike's comment before about being focused on a certain part of the cap table, you know, we're, we're very sector focused on, mm -hmm. on sports. I think that offers us uh, highly differentiated access to deals and, you know, good perspectives on those deals. And I think investors in, in funds and, and, and LPs kind of see that. Um, and, uh, and, and, and plus our space in, in sports and media just happens to garner a lot of uh, healthy investor interest. So we're not really, too worried about fundraising. It's it's never easy to raise money, but uh, we're not we're not too worried about the future. And, and personally, I think uh, I'm hopeful, but I also do think that uh, things will start getting a little bit better as people can start predicting what the, the next six months look like. Whereas in the past, it's just been uh, you know uh, kind of throw your hands up in the air, not looking what not being able to predict what the next six months look like. I'm starting to hear some uh, underlying optimistic tones from from both of you. I'd appreciate the uh, the optimism. There's been a lot of negativism, negativity out there for sure. So 
In addition to fundraising, a unique challenge uh, the industry faces now is that many portfolio company CFOs have not been CFOs in high interest and high inflation environments um, before in their careers. Uh, and in fact, according to BDO's recent 2023 private capital survey, three in five CFOs surveyed started working in their career roles less than 10 years ago. So, uh, Mike, I'm going to go to go to you first and then we'll let uh, Jeff share his thoughts. But what do you think are some of the key challenges portfolio CFOs are facing and how can private equity be a partner to help uh, help them overcome these challenges? I think it's a great question. And, and frankly, I think that is one of our primary roles. I mean, as a control equity investor, I don't really think of the CFO's problems as his or her problems. There, there are problems, right? There, we are an yep. active manager of or partner in these businesses. Um, but given the challenges that you mentioned, and really in any in any environment, I think these companies do need a strong CFO, a strong financial partner. And so it's often a, a role that we look to top grade um, when we get involved in, in, in a company because of the challenges that, 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 you've, that you've mentioned. So for, for us, I think we look for analytical thinkers, right? This, the CFO should be a business person, somebody who understands and can, can produce the numbers, but really help interpret what's behind that, identify KPIs and leading indicators and get in front of all those, those issues. Because again, if there's a problem and they're not on top of it, you know, it, it, it will skip a beat before we can be on top of it. So we try to, to, to discuss these, um, these issues real time through, through what we call operating committees, where we meet on a regular basis and do all that sort of elevator analysis of, you know, prior year versus budget versus month over month, so that our board process becomes very strategic, and and we would expect the CFO to participate in that. And then the last thing I'll say is, and then not just limited to the to the CFO, but um, if I had to point to one, um, you know, uh, headwind for our business, and I would argue probably for for private companies in general, it is access to labor. So in a mm-hmm. in an environment where we have full employment depending on the sector and the geography of the of the business we kind of view that as the one of the key inhibitors or barriers to growth is making sure that we have access not just to any human capital but the the right um, value added human capital so that's just a little bit about how how we would look at that Jeff do you have any different thoughts the way you guys approach that no, fairly similar. I, mean, I completely agree with you on, on the point on, you know, being a business partner and, and a leader. So we always look, we always try to explain uh, that, you know, we want a business partner to the CEO, not not someone who uh, is more of just an accountant. I mean, as you said, there's times and there's a time and a place for that. But we're often looking for a business partner who's kind of partnering with the CEO. You know, that CFO needs to be able to translate the business strategy and the growth ambitions to to a you know a tangible plan that can be tracked against and monitored. Um, you know, and and on our end, given the globalization of sports with you know all the different leagues growing in other countries, Europe, you know, European football coming over here and NFL and NBA and the sports leagues here trying to go global, uh, the CFO is just becoming a you know a broader and more 
more complicated role in the sports and media world. There's global tax considerations and complicated tax structures and transfer pricing and M&A and debt in multi-jurisdictions, currency and FX considerations. So even in the last eight or nine years that Bruin's been around, we've seen a growing importance of the CFO role specifically to our kind of industry and in sports. Uh, and also on our end, since we do a lot of the buy and builds uh, with bolt-on investments, it's important for our CFOs to have some experience and 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 skill set in in, in integration and, and integrating the companies. So they they work with outside consultants um, um, and and steer you know steer the business through all the changes that comes with uh, you know heavy M and A strategy. Uh, but you know really what they have to do is kind of balance you know on one hand optimizing the combined business for the future and setting it up for for the future, which requires a lot of you know change. But also minimizing, you know, the current disruption and allowing the business to continue to uh, to operate. It's kind of the, you know, the putting the plane together while it's flying analogy, and that's just a, you know, part of the necessity of the CFOs uh, these days, I think. And the last thing I'd say is that sports and live events were were shut down during COVID, and, and sports and live events were one of the most heavily impacted industries. And you know, living through that with our CFOs and companies, I think definitely highlighted the value of uh, CFOs, particularly those that could be dynamic and think on their feet and scenario plan in real time. Yeah, well, a couple of really good sound bites there. So I, I'm sure our listeners appreciate that. And I think you guys both know I manage our Friends of BDO Executive Stable, which is a couple thousand very seasoned uh, CEO, CFO, COO type. So I certainly know from the, the clients I cover that uh, Helping them find the uh, the talented CFOs uh, really takes a lot of risk off the table for them. I guess, Mike, I'll just come back to you to close this topic. Uh, are there any specific skill sets you think are critical uh, for portfolio CFOs to possess during these challenging economic times? I mean, I, I really I don't think you have to have special skills dependent on the market environment. It's just a question of which ones you're using. So, what I would point to right now, just just to take rising interest rates, presumably a private equity company CFO is dealing with leverage, right? So preserving right. cash to meet higher interest burdens and how to improve the the, uh, the cash flow, whether that be through investment in working capital being reduced or managing CapEx or better collections. Um, I do think the timing of that becomes a little bit more critical than it was in the last decade when we had basically 0% interest <laughs> environment. So I don't know that that skill was as critical then. Um, and then the other piece I'd say, as we continue to evolve um, with it, with is with technology. Um, you know, we, we say to our investors that we're not technology investors, but that's really not a true statement anymore. I mean, I think everybody to some extent is investing in technology in, in how all of our businesses are run and particularly the finance function and how it integrates with everything else as you roll out new technology, you know, in the backbone of some of these businesses, um, not only is it critical to the, the actual operations, but in terms of all that data that I was referring to earlier, how you can extract KPIs on a real-time basis and share with your partners, uh, yeah. I think becomes critical. Thanks for those additional thoughts, Mike. I'm going to hit a uh, very brief pause on our conversation and turn it over to our coffee break guest, Mike Stevenson, who's going to talk about how BDO can help fill leadership gaps. Take it away, Mike. Thanks for having me today, Todd. And as Todd mentioned, I'm Mike Stevenson, Managing Principal for BDO's Accounting Advisory and Outsourcing Group. 
And as we heard, those are some pretty great thoughts and insights from both Jeff and Mike. And they're really consistent with what we're hearing from other PE groups and stakeholders alike. I don't think it's a surprise to anyone dealing with these issues that for several years now, we've seen some challenges in workforce capacity, and particularly in some of the areas that Jeff and Mike were noting. We also tend to see some of these same skill set gaps extending throughout the accounting and finance functions of those organizations. And usually that's not a problem when the companies are just plugging along as they, they have always done, where the main focus for that company is on the operational aspects of the business. And that's fair. However, once these companies become part of a bigger ecosystem of the fund, the needs for these skill sets really become more critical. And it becomes even more critical for that higher level gap analysis to be present especially at the closer to the fund is uh, to the end of the life cycle with the portfolio company, regardless of the exit strategy. Now, with all that, I I really feel that's where BDO plays a key role for PE funds and their respective portfolio companies. Within our accounting advisory and outsourcing group, we employ what I would call a holistic end-to-end set of solutions, providing a host of those services. And so whether your needs uh, at the fund or the portfolio level are from interim or fractional CFO and controller level professionals, the basic blocking and tackling of daily debits and credits or just the bookkeeping or or really any of the complex accounting for significant transactions. And, and, and that would include the initial acquisition by the fund all the way to the final exit of that portfolio company and the reporting issues that that result of that. That really fits right into our wheelhouse. Uh, and, and and we can lever up and down on those services based on the ask of the fund. And it's, it's never really one size fits all. We have... Uh, We've worked with these PE funds and their respective portfolio companies uh, of pretty much all shapes, sizes, and industries. And what we try to do is we employ a consistent team approach to each of our PE fund clients. So what they can expect is the same level of service, quality, and responsiveness in our approach across all of their portfolio companies. Now, with all that, I tend to believe that we're going to be seeing many of these workforce trends uh, we're speaking of for the foreseeable future. And it's, it's going to be difficult for companies to, to try and hire their way out of these situations. So looking to build relationships with firms and finding the trusted partners who are providing these types of services could be one way that the funds themselves can offload uh, some of the work and the lift that's required for them to maintain some of these records. Todd, that's it for me today. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Mike. That dovetails nicely with where our conversation is headed, a focus on the talent challenges impacting private equity. So our recent survey guys also found that both fund managers and portfolio CFOs will be using talent management as their primary strategy for value creation over the next 12 months. So Jeff, what has the staffing situation been like uh, at your portfolio companies and how has it changed, if at all, over the past few years. I guess I'm also curious how you're working with portfolio company leaders to ensure the right talent is in place to execute uh, the value creation plan. Sure, yeah, I mean, it's it's a topic at every, um, you know, whether it's a monthly meeting, a quarterly board meeting, a bi-weekly check-in, uh, talent and hiring is uh, has been a common a common theme. And we've, uh, for certain companies that are trying to, you know, it's a high class problem of rapid growth. You also need to rapidly fill roles. And we've taken a slew of different 
approaches, crash hiring and, you know, looking at, you know, opening new offices just to house people where it's, uh, if it, it's tough in a given market to fill a role. So there's, you know, been some common challenges, I'd say, but, you know, specifically each company and, and country has some different dynamics uh, that we've seen in our portfolio. Um, you know, I'd say due to some of the careful scenario planning I, I mentioned earlier during COVID, the cash flow planning and and uh, uh, and other work throughout the you know to kind of navigate the the pandemic, we were able to manage our, our companies uh, to kind of make it through the pandemic despite the heavy impact of sports. Uh, so you know, minimize layoffs. So we weren't in an industry or our companies weren't kind of you know cutting significantly and then you know having to massively rehire, but we are kind of growth focused businesses. I've said this a couple of times now where we're, we're often doing buy and build. So we are looking to, you know, frequently hire and add to the teams and, and just the general economic uh, conditions now with very low unemployment and high inflation, it's definitely becoming harder and more expensive to find talent, especially in certain industries. Um, you know, a couple of examples, we own a sports betting content business uh, that that operates in the UK and the US. And, as sports betting is becoming more widely adopted in the U.S., there's just kind of an insatiable appetite by uh, consumers to, in, to to kind of ingest that type of content and read and devour the type of content, whether it's data tools to to give advice on on betting or just general kind of overviews on the on the matches. Um, and so it's it's hard to find experienced people not only on the content side but to manage the technology and and tools and data. That, that underpin the, the whole sports betting ecosystem. Uh, so, you know, it's harder to find those people with experience. Uh, software developers for our golf technology business are costing more. So, you know, we're trying to get creative and, you know, not, you know, open, like I mentioned before, open new offices and other areas and not requiring, uh, you know, people to, to, to work where that company is founded. It's, it's, it's important to get people back uh, to the office and have, uh, and have uh, have people together again, but equally, if if a market's kind of tapped out, and we can go to a new state or a new market and find talented people um, outside the company's headquarters, we're we're looking at that. So we just try to be dynamic about where we hire, what level of experience we need when our companies need to uh, need to fill roles. Yeah, Mike, uh, anything to anything to add on this topic? No, I mean, as I said before, I do think um, access to to human capital is is an issue, not just for our portfolio companies, but also for our industry, just making sure that we can have the right, the right people in the right seats at the right time and, and provide right. them with the right professional development path continues to be, you know, I wouldn't say a challenge, but a, but a focus. I appreciate the perspectives. I've been having a blast, but the, this, this will bring us to our last question of the episode. And uh, that is the, uh, the promise to your outlook for the next 12 months, the uh, crystal ball question. So uh, what are your predictions for private equity in the next year? Uh, how do you expect it to evolve? And what do you think will need to be done differently in the coming year to combat current challenges? So, Mike, I'm going to put you on the, uh, the hot seat first. I mean, since none of us have a crystal ball, I'm not so worried about being on the hot seat. We remain cautiously optimistic. I think we, we subscribe to the sort of soft landing, um, you know, the, 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 the idea that we can have anything more than that with full employment is challenging to, to believe. Um, and we're seeing that through the lens of our portfolio company. I think what's perhaps, you know, more typical in the middle market versus the large cap is that we're still seeing growth. Um, perhaps in some cases, the growth rate has slowed, but we're still seeing growth, both organic and inorganic across 
uh, our portfolios. Um, so we're going to continue the blocking and tackling to make sure that that doesn't subside. I'm not saying it's not a challenge, but it's definitely right. um, one that we feel uh, needs to needs to be most of our focus. Getting to that doubling and tripling of cash flow um, will continue to to be our primary goal. Um, I think as an industry, though, if you think about the L in LBO, you know, leverage right now is is going to be a challenge for most investors when you have a tightly wound capital structure that you ran a model at, you know, when capital was about six and a half percent two years ago, and now it's almost double that. Mm -hmm. It's just difficult to manage, not to manage the business, but to manage the growth that you were expected in that model when all of your or most of your free cash flow needs to go to pay down to uh, service the interest on that debt, which is hardly an equity value creating activity. Um, right. So we feel fortunate in that we use a lot less leverage from from third parties, really like three to four times max. Um, so, yes, we're impacted, but not as much. Um, so where I think about how we'll play, making add on acquisitions becomes more interesting because we have debt capacity and we have cash flow to, to do that and, and, and many don't. And offering um, you know, owner operators and management teams a less risky capital structure in a in a change of control transaction, I think puts us in a in a in a smaller category. So that's how we would um navigate through through those challenges. Jeff, care to share your thoughts? Yeah, sure. So I mean obviously there's a lot of mixed views on hard versus soft landing and trajectory of global interest rates increases and decreasing uh, depending on who you ask. And, and uh, as Mike said, the reality is no one really knows. We don't have a crystal ball. Um, in my personal opinion, I think, you know, rates are probably likely to be higher for longer as, as compared to what the market's pricing into the yield curve. But, but that says, I think what we've also seen with the stock market this year and the economy that the consumer economy is, is very resilient. And my own personal view is, that we're heading more towards the the soft landing, as uh, as Mike said. Um, so I guess that's my best crystal ball uh, estimate. But uh, on the or uh, forecast, again, the tying it back to Bruin, though, we're, we're as, as Mike mentioned before, we're also less reliant on leverage. You know, we're usually fairly conservative there, and um, you know, given our hyper focus on our specific sec sector and and really only investing in businesses that are growth oriented we're again much less impacted by the higher rates because we're really generating our returns from from growth rather than um rather than additional debt we never bank on it but we often see exit multiple expansion since we're, we're we're helping to improve the fundamentals often buying smaller businesses and growing them and 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 kind of building them into bigger bigger companies so so again i think depending on is barring a, a gfc type crash which i don't i don't think we're we're predicting by any means i think uh regardless of of where rates go and what the next 6 to 12 months look like we're fairly confident that in our sector we'll find uh, good opportunities and be able to continue to invest intelligently and 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 drive value in our uh, in our in our companies i'd also my my one other prediction and hope Kind of first half of next year will bounce back in terms of m a activity i think a lot of companies that have been on the sideline just because it's it's been so hard to predict and no one wants to launch a process in a uh in a, such an uncertain uh, economic environment i think i think uh the, the first half of, of next year could look a lot uh, more robust from an m a perspective than uh than 2023 did 
Yeah, interesting that last thought. I, I, I'm definitely hearing that uh, from from a lot of bankers as well that have uh, been been holding those assets on the sidelines. So, guys, that was an awesome conversation. Really interesting. Uh, clearly, we uh, value our relationships with Levine Lightman Capital and Brewing Capital, and I appreciate you both taking time out of your busy schedules to to be with us. I know you're globe trotters and chasing a lot of deals and and managing your company. So. Really, again, thanks thanks to both of you for joining the podcast today. No, no place I'd rather be, Todd. So appreciate, <laughs> appreciate the invitation and, and thanks for putting this together. Yeah, thanks for having us, Todd. Yeah, my pleasure, guys. To our listeners, thanks so much for listening. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review of the show wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, this is BDO's Private Equity Perspectives. The views presented by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective firms. 